Welcome to The Social Contract, a podcast created by author George S. Corey and the artist Cleo. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode four of The Social Contract. I'm actor, writer, producer Tavia Gilbert, and I'm your host for the conclusion of our special double episode, The Last Temptation of Trump. But first, a quick recap about The Social Contract. This monthly podcast is for political junkies who might have forgotten just how fun and often comical politics and Washington's political figures can be. The podcast was created as a companion piece of sorts to George's first book, Presidential Conversations, which I'm excited to share goes on sale tomorrow, April 26th, in paperback. I cannot wait to get my copy. We'll make sure to put links in the show notes so that you can get yours, too. Now, you don't need to be familiar with the book to thoroughly enjoy The Social Contract. But in keeping with the spirit of the book, this podcast features fictional, often satirical send-ups of the hot-button political issues of the day. Like Part 1, Part 2 of The Last Temptation of Trump, called The Last Supper Club, contains a fun, savvy send-up of Trump world using a very loosely-based biblical narrative. I love how George conceived these stories as political satires of epic proportions. Now, on to our story, which we hope will become an annual listening event this time of year. By way of a quick recap, The Last Temptation of Trump was conceived by George on the occasion of CPAC 2021, which was held exactly 40 days after President Biden's inauguration. And as reported in the last episode, not much has changed in Trump world between then and now. Without further ado, I present Robin Miles and Stephen DeRosa in the conclusion of The Last Temptation of Trump. Let's listen. Part Two, The Last Supper Club. Later that evening, after having fired up his disciples at CPAC, Trump took the elevator to his Doral Golf Resort's second-floor dining room for a celebratory dinner. His mood had flipped from earlier that morning, and he was positively beaming. He loved evangelizing and had really missed his rallies. In truth, no one could sell Trumpism quite like Trump. While he had appreciated the support he received at CPAC from Governors Ron DeSantis of Florida and Kristi Noem of South Dakota, he couldn't stand hearing them speak, and suspected many others felt the same. To Trump, Ron sounded like Fozzie Bear from the Muppets, and Kristi pierced his ears with her Francis McDormand in Fargo voice. Still, He admired Christie's 90s Madonna arms. That took dedication. Trump was accompanied on the ride up by former First Lady Melania, his daughter Ivanka, and his daughter-in-law Lara, all in evening attire. The elevator door opened to Trump, flanked by the three women frozen in Charlie's Angels pose. To his right was Melania, the threesome's glam brunette, her arms outstretched in a karate pose. Ivanka, in a beaded turtleneck gown, was the Sabrina of the group, i.e. the smart one. She was hunched down in front of her father, 
cheerily holding a bejeweled toy rifle. To Trump's left was Lara, with a similarly bejeweled toy pistol, daintily cocked in her hand. With the best and biggest hair, the most ambition, and genuine star quality, Lara was the Farah of the group. Despite having been a business mogul and president of the United States, Trump mainly thought of himself as a TV star. He loved television and invariably related almost every person or situation to a character or program he had seen on the boob tube. So these three were his angels. He especially enjoyed inserting himself into the famous opening lines of the original Charlie's Angels as it was intoned in his head. Once upon a time, there were three beautiful girls, and now they work for me. My name is Trump. All three of them, he thought, were great for the Trump brand. Still, as much as his angels played nice when the public and the press were watching, the threesome's actual relationship was chilly at best, brimming with rivalries and resentment. As Trump and his angels made the long, slow trek to the head table, stopping to pose for selfies and Trump pausing to pump his fist in the air at the adoring crowd, Melania and Ivanka were at it again, bickering sotto voce. Nice turtleneck, Princess Ivanka, said Melania disparagingly. You got that right, stepmommy dearest, Ivanka replied, not missing a beat. I am daddy's princess and, more importantly, heir apparent to the Trump political dynasty. You're just the third-rate third wife, Melania shot Ivanka that ice queen stare. Here you are going again, Ivanka, she said. Although she sounded like Natasha from the Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoon, Melania actually spoke near-perfect English. She thought her accent differentiated her from the other women in the Trump universe, so she really played up the whole Slovenian immigrant thing every chance she got. You always are going on and on about your grand plannings to be the America's first Woman president, with Prince Consort Jared by your side. No, thank you. I was so sick in my stomach, looking at all of you Trump childrens, running around White House crying, look on me, look on me, and acting like you were the ones in charge. Never did any of you show me respect as first of ladies, especially you. You always steal spotlight, like you, Vestis Star and The Apprentice. Give me a break, Mel, uttered Ivanka, still smiling to the crowd. You and I both know that you were first lady in name only. I was the one who actually did everything. You did too much, Melania snapped back. You meddled in everything in White House, every meeting, every dinner, every event with camera. And look what happened. Donald lost. As Melania and Ivanka argued about the past, Lara was busy planning for the future, her future. The group finally arrived at the head table. Each of the pardon trio, Roger Stone, Steve Bannon, and Michael Flynn, scrambled to beat Trump's own boys, Don Jr., Eric, and Jared Kushner, to be the first to greet the former president. As a result of his rallies, 
Trump had gotten used to people climbing over each other just for a chance to touch him. He loved it. Roger Stone, in a wide striped suit and electric yellow tie, looking like a real-life villain from the 60s Batman TV show, elbowed Bannon. Watch it, sleazebag, growled Bannon. Back of the line. Better yet, why don't you get out of here and don't come back till you've gotten Trump's face tattooed on your ass? Bannon's intent was to mock Stone, who famously had a tattoo of Richard Nixon etched into his shoulder blades. But without missing a beat, Stone chirpily replied, I already have. Flynn, ever the general, had permeated the crowd and was about to be the first to get to greet Trump when Rudy Giuliani, huffing and puffing, pushed to the head of the line and blocked him. Good evening, Mr. President, cried Giuliani, catching his breath, sweating profusely with a copious amount of black-red tincture dripping down the sides of his face. Trump had to hand it to the former New York City mayor. The guy could barely breathe and looked worse for wear, but somehow, Rudy always got it done. So George is obviously having fun with some biblical archetypes here. I think it's so creative how he's setting up this sort of Last Supper tableau featuring Trump and all his cronies. And Stephen is making me giggle. He sounds exactly like Rudy Giuliani. And I love how Robin brought to life George's dramatization of the Melania-Ivanka rivalry. Indeed, there seems to be no love lost between those two. Let's continue. After they had been seated, Trump, who was at the center of this Trump world tableau, rose to his feet. Then, with arms outstretched, he addressed them, just as he had the packed hall at CPAC a few hours earlier. As he spoke, Melania stole a glance at her reflection in a butter knife, just to make sure her pout was still perfectly glossed. There is so much work to do if we want to fix our party, Trump said. And here, away from the swamp, as your president in exile, I plan to do just that. Let's start with the money. That last line went over extremely well in this crowd. The RNC, which it turns out is no friend of mine, has been trading on Trump's name to raise money for itself. Can you believe that? Before Laura could stop him, her husband, Eric Trump, jumped out of his seat to energetically ape what his father had just said. I know, right? The so-called party elders are like our own Pharisees, raising money for themselves in your name, Dad. Don Jr. and his curvy lady friend Kimberly Guilfoyle, the self-anointed king and queen of the MAGA prom, smirked at each other. Eric's biblical analogy may have been on point, but his public and desperate sucking up to his father was embarrassing, and that Eddie Haskell voice was beyond annoying. Deep down, Junior knew that Eric was more intelligent than him. So he was relieved whenever his brother said or did something less than smart. And he was absolutely tickled that anyone who watched Saturday Night Live would view Eric and not him as the stupid one. For her part, Kimberly played along. But she secretly wished she'd stuck it out with her ex, California Governor Gavin Newsom, so that she could have been first lady of something. 
Meanwhile, Jared, simpering and bird-like, and Ivanka, with that plastered smile, had helped draft Trump's remarks and knew what was coming. Despite their culpability in providing often spectacularly bad counsel to Trump, he still afforded them incredible influence. Ivanka was very much her father's daughter, and nothing she or Jared could do would change that. That is why today, Trump continued, I announced the Great America Pack, which allows us to keep for ourselves all the money we raise from both small donors and those big, beautiful corporate donors alike. My pack is so good, they're calling it a super pack. The entire room erupted in applause. Thank you, thank you very much, Trump continued. Your support is great, it really is. But believe me, one of you who is seated with me at this table tonight will betray me to the rhinos. As a swell of contestations arose, Trump looked upon the people who had gathered at the head table of the Trump Supper Club. He said, The one to whom I pass an hors d'oeuvre will betray me with a kiss off on Twitter and a mere 30 shares of a silver commodities index fund. Trump then dipped a mini Monte Cristo sandwich into the accompanying roast beef drippings and passed it on a lace gold paper doily to Steve Bannon. Woe to the man who betrays Trump, Trump exclaimed in his best basso profundo. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Bannon rose up out of his seat and scurried away like a rat. Deep down, Trump always thought Bannon looked like an unmade bed, so he was secretly relieved to banish him. Rudy G., who was seated at the right hand of Trump, and who all knew was Trump's favorite, marveled aloud, Wow, I didn't see that one coming. I thought Bannon was a true believer. No one's faith is resolute, Rudy. Not even yours, said Trump. You will deny me three times. That's impossible, Rudy shot back. You will deny me to New York State Attorney General Tish James, you will deny me to Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney Fannie Willis. And you will deny me to United States Attorney General Merrick Garland, all of whom are, very unfairly, and some say illegally, trying to take Trump down. Rudy's eyes welled up. Then he started to ugly cry. What was supposed to be a celebratory dinner had taken a darker turn. They all sat in stunned silence. Even Don Jr., who could effortlessly bloviate to fill the silence at times like these. Before he dismissed them, telling them to go and tell others all that they had heard and seen tonight, Trump made them a promise. He would run again in 2024, and he would win. He would defeat Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, or whoever the crooked Democrats had installed by then, to become the 47th President of the United States. It would be the greatest political resurrection story ever told. 
I just have three words in response to that. Amazing, entertaining, and most of all, prescient. I mean, that's some serious political prognostication on George S. Corey's part, especially considering that this story was conceived a year ago, when Trump's political intentions were far less known. You know, I think it's so brave of George to have imbued this two-parter with religious themes. And he did so in such a respectful way that was no less impactful. And George may just be on to something. None other than Trump's former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows used downright biblical language in texts he is said to have exchanged with Virginia Ginny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, about the 2020 presidential election. Meadows is reported to have told Thomas that the election battle was a fight of good versus evil, and that evil always looks like the victor until the King of Kings triumphs. We'll put a link to Leanne Caldwell and Dara Gregorian's report for NBC News in the show notes. It can be easy for us to take for granted the incredible freedoms we enjoy as Americans, which are also vital underpinnings of the social contract. I'm thinking especially of the First Amendment, which allows such political satires as these to not only be created, but also be freely shared and enjoyed. We tend to focus on the idea of free speech when we think of the First Amendment, but the Establishment Clause is equally important. This clause forbids the government from establishing an official religion and prohibits government actions that unduly favor one religion over another or unduly prefer religion over non-religion, or non-religion over religion, for that matter. So if you've enjoyed The Last Temptation of Trump, remember it was only possible thanks to our First Amendment. The First Amendment is so pure and so powerful, I'd love to recite it now. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. On that note, I want to welcome Sam Goldman, Executive Director of the Loeb Institute for Religious Freedom at George Washington University, as well as a professor of political science at GW. Professor Goldman is the author of two books, God's Country and After Nationalism. He is a national correspondent for The Week, and his writing has also appeared in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and many other publications. Professor Goldman, it's such a pleasure to welcome you to The Social Contract. Can you tell me a little bit about the Institute's mission, how you got involved? Who are you? <laughs> Tell our listeners who you are. Our mission is to support teaching and research related to the ideal of religious freedom with a particular emphasis on the legacy of George Washington, who is both the namesake of our university and the author of the 1790 letter to the Jewish congregation of Newport, which expresses in one of its most eloquent versions, the American 
principle of religious freedom and distinguishes that principle from the mere toleration that had been practiced in some previous societies in Europe and elsewhere. I find it very moving that our very first president talked about religious tolerance. And I think that that links to the ideals of Ambassador Loeb, former U.S. ambassador to Denmark, who dedicated his life to the preservation of the First Amendment and to the furtherance of religious tolerance. I was moved by what he said about us moving beyond tolerance into living with warmth and understanding of people whose backgrounds may be different. So there's this lovely direct line from George Washington to Ambassador Loeb to you. We think of this as a new idea, but it really isn't. As you mentioned, it was expressed by Washington, and not only in the letter to the Jewish community of Newport, which was, in fact, one of a number of letters that he wrote to minority religious communities all over the country, reassuring their members that they were not merely tolerated annoyances, but were full members of the American political community. Do you think that aspirational ideal is achievable in our current culture? I think it's always been a challenge. It was not altogether a reality in the 18th century, and it's not altogether a reality today. There have always been, on the one hand, Americans who have believed that the United States is not only essentially a a Christian nation, but also historically that it has been a Protestant nation, and have tried in various ways to promote that conception of American national identity at the expense of religious pluralism. On the other hand, and this is a somewhat more recent phenomenon, there are Americans who insist on a rigorous secularism which seeks to confine religious activity and expression to the private sphere uh, in the privacy of one's home or behind the doors of houses of worship, but doesn't see religious religion as a permanent and necessary part of American civil society. And Washington's letter and the ideas he expresses in his other letters as well resist both those extremes in a way that to me feels very fresh and relevant, even though the words were written more than 200 years ago. You published a book last year, after nationalism, being American in an age of division. So I'm wondering if you have any advice to share with our listeners who still believe in that American ideal of unity, even amidst the current division and polarization and derision of each side or all sides. This is not a new problem. And rather than having fallen from some condition of perfect stability, 50 or 100 or 150 years ago, Americans have always faced the challenge of sustaining political unity and cooperation amidst a really wide range of religious, cultural, and ethnic differences. And the way that balance has been pursued in the past will not look exactly the way that it does today, but I see it as a perennial challenge that each generation must face rather than an unprecedented problem. You've also talked about the distinction between patriotism 
and nationalism. I try not to rely too heavily on the distinction between terms. Um, instead, I suggest that there are two ways of understanding the meaning of the American people and its boundaries. And one of those understandings is based on citizenship and political participation under our constitutional institutions. The other is based on a set of religious or ethnic or racial criteria that stand outside the political community. And I don't care very much which you want to call patriotism or which nationalism, and I, I could show you examples of either use being used for either meaning, but I defend a vision of American identity that emphasizes political participation and maintaining American political institutions rather than criteria that stand outside practice um, and that are understood to have been fixed once and for all at some point in the past and which it is therefore our job to uphold without modification or change. I'm curious which of our 46 American presidents stands out most to you and why. And I think our listeners, especially our younger listeners, would love to hear who your favorite president or presidents are. Washington really does have a distinctive role because he tried with remarkable discipline and commitment um, to make himself into a political figure whom most Americans could see as their president and as embodying their hopes for their country. I think his communications with these minority religious communities were part of this effort. He wanted to make sure that he was the president of all Americans, not just of the Anglo-Protestant majority. Among 20th century presidents, I think President Eisenhower remains underrated in the popular imagination, probably because he was a little bit boring. But boring can be a good thing, and I would be happy to get a little bit more boring competence rather than the dramatic performances that we've become accustomed to today. Is there a period in American history when you would say that the First Amendment was in peril? At present, I think legally the First Amendment is in very good shape, and recent Supreme Court decisions have been extremely protective of religious freedom. My concern now has less to do with the legal status of the First Amendment than the principles that it embodies. And one of the things that concerns me is that I now see it, with increasing frequency, the phrase religious freedom placed in quotation marks to suggest that it's somehow bogus or suspect or not really important. And that worries me because it's important not only to rely on a culture of freedom, but also to be able to count on legal enforcement of fundamental rights. But vice versa, legal enforcement is not enough. And where fundamental freedoms and rights are not considered important, it will be very difficult to enforce them. I fear that the cultural support for those ideas is eroding. At the risk of sounding a little bit corny, perhaps, what can Americans do in our daily lives to honor the First Amendment? 
The best thing you can do in your daily life is get off the internet and get to know real people with whom you live and work and whom you are almost inevitably going to discover, disagree with you on all sorts of important things, religious, political, and other, and yet find it possible to continue cooperating with you on a daily basis. The next that best thing you can do is get involved with associations of real people who are trying to accomplish something. And those may have a, a political form, they may take a religious form, but it is very, very easy. And I am guilty of this just as much as anyone else. Um, I'm not uh, preaching from on, on high here. It is very, very easy to denounce people on Twitter or Facebook and say how stupid and pernicious and dangerous they are. It's much harder to work with others to get something done, but there are rewards associated with those challenges. And one of those, I think, is that they help us to recognize people with whom we share very little as fellow citizens and fellow human beings who are entitled to civic respect. A fascinating end to the conversation. And thank you to Professor Goldman. Well, this episode of The Social Contract has run the full gamut. I hope we entertained. I hope we informed a bit, too. As we near the end of this holiday-themed two-part episode, I want to share a closing quote, as I do each episode. Today's quote comes from former President Barack Obama. As we celebrate this time of renewal, let's find strength in our shared resolve and purpose in our common aspirations. And if we can do that, then not only will we fulfill the sacred meaning of these holy days, but we will fulfill the promise of our country as a leader around the world. What a hopeful note on which to end our episode and usher in springtime. I hope, like me, you're already looking forward to our next episode, which comes out on May 30th. Remember, we always release on the last Monday of the month. This episode will feature a sneak preview of Presidential Conversations for Kids by George S. Corey, featuring art by Cleo. I cannot wait. I want to thank Professor Sam Goldman and everyone at the Loeb Institute for Religious Freedom at George Washington University, Robin Miles, Stephen DeRosa, and of course, creators of The Social Contract, George S. Corey and Cleo. If you enjoyed this podcast, it's a safe bet you'll really enjoy George's book, Presidential Conversations, available in hardcover, digital, audio, and paperback. Learn more about George S. Corey at georgescorey.com and about Cleo at theartistcleo.com. We'll give you all those links in the show notes. And if you take a look at our episode transcript, you'll be able to check out Cleo's Last Supper. Most of all, as always, I want to thank you, our listeners. We're so glad to have you with us. Be sure to follow the Social Contract Podcast, available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We hope this will become one of them. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love it if you'd rate and review us. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at MyTSCPodcast. This has been the Social Contract Podcast 
Created by George S. Corey and Cleo. Produced and hosted by Tavia Gilbert. Associate producer Katie Flood. Music courtesy of Listen Audio. Mix and master by Kayla Elrod. This has been a podcast from Listen Audio in association with TalkBox Productions. <laughs>